sure I get this to where you want it. <laughs> Glad to be here with you this morning. I am here this morning with my wife, uh, my wife Amy, and uh, and I thought since uh, this being the type of uh, situation it is, I tell you a little bit about myself, give you some chances to uh, to ask questions if you have any, and uh, then depending upon how all that goes, we uh, we do have some uh, spiritual things that we can discuss to go along with it. So, um, Amy and I have been married for. 50 or 60, <laughs> um, we were married in 1995, I'll let you do the math, and um, so we have uh, two daughters, one of which uh, graduated from Freed Hardeman this past year and got uh, married right away, got her off my payroll, and uh, she and her husband now live in Starkville, Mississippi, he still has uh, two years left there at, uh, at Mississippi State, going for an electrical engineering degree, uh, at least that's what he thinks he wants to do. Um, my oldest daughter is actually a senior at Freed Hardeman this year, and, uh, and so she uh, is on course to, to graduate and trying to decide in that, uh, that flux of life if she wants to go on to graduate school or if she wants to, to go to work. I know which one I vote for, but um, anyway, she, uh, they're, they're both doing well and uh, both, both very active in whatever groups they are or have been in the church. Uh, and we relate a lot of that to the fact that that's what Amy and I have done throughout our life. Um, once again, we, we married right out of diapers. And so uh, we have, have been, uh, ever since we started, about the work of the church. It wasn't very long after we uh, were married uh, that we began to, to teach regularly in the, uh, the, the uh, teenage classes and junior high classes. Uh, in fact, we became uh, the junior high youth group uh, leaders, uh, even though we weren't, uh, you know, not an employed job, but just as part of the what we did for the church. Um, I was, uh, we were at the South Haven Church of Christ at the time, and uh, you may know uh, B.J. Clark. Uh, he may have been through. B.J. was our preacher for that that whole time we were um, doing that. And uh, in fact, we, uh, we we find it funny that uh, we used to babysit his children, and now we see his children preaching and and uh, and, and working for the the kingdom. As well, and so as we worked through that, you know, once again we were we were employed. I sold industrial electrical supplies. I sold motors and stuff that you find in factories is what I sold, and um, did that for for quite a while. Of course, uh, when you start teaching, they always happy to get teachers. Um, some of the, those encouraged me to attend school, and I told them, I said, I have no problem standing up in front of an audience with a prepared sermon and reading it word for word. That's not a problem. I said, but what scares me to death is to stand up in an adult Bible class and try to teach and wait for somebody to ask a question that I don't know the answer to. Well, what I quickly found out was that the adults had the exact same questions that the teenagers I'd been teaching had, and so it actually worked out pretty well, and we did that, and I kept saying, you know, I wish there was a way I could do this all the time. I wish, you know, because I work all day, I pour, pour into studies in the evenings, I go and I teach, and it's like, man, I enjoy that. I wish there was a way I could do that. And, of course, it was staring me right in the face. It said, well, then you go to preaching school, you become a preacher. And so uh, we went, we'd say later in life, we were in our 30s whenever we went to preaching school. Um, finished that up, went to, uh, went to a small work there in uh, northeast, north central Mississippi. Um, one of my supporters, while I was in school, ended up with a need for a work. And so I ended up in Mumford, Tennessee, which is just north of Memphis. It's the first uh, suburb outside of the county that Memphis is, is in, and uh, preached there for a while, and uh, then ran into the uh, executive director of the Pineville Children's Home, 
which we had done some work with the children's home in my first work as relief house parents. And uh, I asked him the questions you always ask those guys. How's the work going and how many children do you have? And I don't remember how many children they had, but they said, well, we're looking for a new set of house parents and we're looking for a, a new director. And I was talking to the director, and so I said, well, what's, what's going on? And he told me that uh, he had only intended to take the job for five years and told the board that from the get-go, and uh, so he was looking for his replacement. And so uh, through a course of conversations and prayers, and um, I felt a little bit like Moses at the burning bush, but next thing I know, I'm the executive director of the Pineville Children's Home in Corinth, Mississippi. And, uh, and so we did that work for about seven or eight years, and uh, as we, we uh, reached a point to where we, uh, well, you get burned out in that work. It is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job. We lived on campus uh, with, the, with the children. Sometimes when house parents would leave, Amy and I would move into the houses and have to uh, be director and house parents. Uh, in fact, about half the time we were there, we spent actually in the house with children. And so uh, through the course, we decided that it was, it was best that we step away uh, once we started getting burned out because that's one of those jobs where you have to have a full heart in it and uh, you start to become apathetic. And so, uh, so it's, it's a funny thing transitioning out of work like that, uh, especially when it's been your child for seven years. And, um, and so I worked out about a six-month resignation, uh, found my own replacement, brought him in and uh, helped make sure he was set up. He, uh, he was a, a good fit for the job. Uh, but Amy and I decided it was best at that time for us to stay in Corinth. Um, I had started preaching for a small congregation outside of town, uh, the Snowdown Church of Christ. Uh, it is in Cairo, Mississippi, which if you ever see the sign driving down Highway 72, you will call it Cairo uh, because it's spelled like Cairo, Egypt, but it's Cairo in that part of Mississippi. And um, I tell people when you, when you go down that road, when you lose cell phone signal, you're where I preach. And uh, so that's, that's where we are. And, uh, and it's, it, they're a great group of folks. They've uh, been very supportive in my decision to, to move on from there. Uh, in fact, when I'm not uh, trying out somewhere, I'm expected to be there preaching. And so we're continuing to work with them as best we can. But um, because the reasons that we had for staying in Corinth have kind of uh, dissipated. Uh, my mom was in a nursing home at the time. She's since passed away. Uh, both my girls were about to start Freed Hardeman, which is only about 45 minutes away, and so we wanted to stay close for them, and once again, those, those things are changing, and so, uh, so we've opened ourselves up. Uh, in fact, I went to Polish in the pulpit, and um, as I'm sitting there listening, I went back to that same phrase I said 20 years ago, man, I wish I could get back to doing this full time. I wish I could put my full energy back into this work, because preaching for that small congregation when I left Pineville. I had to go back into the secular work. Now, Lord blesses me and blesses again. He, uh, the company I was working for when I first left to go to preaching school uh, had a branch location in Corinth. I worked in Memphis at that time. Had a branch location in Corinth. Walked in to talk to my friend that still worked there, and he said, hey, man, I need an outside sales guy for my store. And a week later, I was back to work for him. And so I said, 15 years since I sold electrical supplies, but uh, I guess I'll figure it out. So, um, so that's, that's kind of how we got to where we are today. And, uh, and so we are, we're happy to be here with you today, and I uh, hope we can be of encouragement to one another. And, uh, and 
guess I'll ask you then if you have any particular questions that uh, you might want to know about work that I've done. Sir, you went to Memphis School of Preaching. Yes, sir. I went to the Memphis School of Preaching, graduated in 2010. So. Was B.J. Clark there? He was an instructor then. He was not the director at the time. Uh, Bobby Liddell was the director at the time. Uh, in fact, Munford, where I preached my second job, his family was members. Bobby Liddell's family was members there, he and his family. And he now preaches for them uh, at the Munford Church of Christ. Who did you teach under in Memphis? Who were my instructors? Um, well, B.J., obviously, um, Keith Mosier, Billy Bland, uh, Garland Elkins, Curtis Cates, Dan Cates. Um, I'm sure I had some more, but I must not have liked them very much. <laughs> what was your favorite class? My favorite class? Wow. Don't say green. No, no, no. Uh, we're we're not worried about anybody that says green. It's a favorite class. <laughs> I did join a, a Facebook group the other day that is diagramming Greek uh, passages. So um, I'll tell you, probably some of my favorite subjects since I left school um, have been the ones that I probably struggled with the most in school. Uh, and part of that was uh, GBI, which I thought was going to be the easiest class there. The GBI stands for General Biblical Introduction. And I said, I've been a Christian my entire life. General biblical introduction ought to be simple. Well, general biblical introduction is the uncials and miscules and all the little things that they put together to make the to make the Greek text. And then how does that get to an English Bible? And uh, guess what? Y'all probably haven't heard a sermon on that lately. And I don't know that I had ever heard a sermon on it in my life. And so a lot of that was foreign to me. Uh, but I have found, particularly in today's society, um, a big discussion on that. In fact, I um, tried out at a place a couple of weeks ago. And the first thing, I opened, did kind of the same thing. Opened it up for a question. The first thing, there was a, a young man there, mid-20s. I call that young still. His hand went up. And I said, okay, yeah, what you got? I mean, it was quick. He like, what translation do you use? <laughs> I was like, oh, me, we're going to start there. Um, and I picked up this one. I said, look, this right here is an ESV. I said, that's what I typically preach from now on a consistent basis. I said, now, if you hear me quote a scripture from memory, chances are I'm quoting it from the King James Version. Um, I've got a 1988 Dixon Study Bible that I have rebound to carry me through the Memphis School of Preaching. And uh, it, it has notes in it that I, I still use it because it's still got my, all my good notes in it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. Um, and so we had the discussion about translations. And I said, I, I'm, more important to me is the fact that you open your Bible and you read it. And if I, if I want someone today to open up a Bible and read it, I don't start with the King James Version. Um, I start with something that they can relate to. And uh, I have, I, in fact, I said when I transitioned from preaching from the King James to the New King, or to the, to the ESV, it changed the way I preached because I used to, in my preaching, would find, get to a word and say, okay, let me tell you what this word means. Well, the ESV just translates it into that word. 
So what I end up doing now is I get to that passage and I get to those words and I say, okay, now let me go back and let me tell you what the Greek word is. Or actually, not the Greek word, but the meaning of the Greek word. I said, because you won't ever hear the Greek word again outside these walls, but you need to know what the meaning is. Um, And the the, uh, illustration I used for them that day was uh, from Matthew 19.9 on um, uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage particularly. And I said, you know, the, the, the Lord gives the, the grounds there for, for that as, as fornication. I said, if I go down the, the streets, if I, if I walk out this door and I walk over here to the main road and I walk into any of the stores there and I walk up to someone who's under the age of probably 40 and I ask them, can you tell me what the word fornication means? They will probably look at me cross-eyed. I don't, don't have any idea. That's not a word in their vocabulary. Now, one of the things I've seen against some of the newer translations is they translate that word, instead of fornication, they translate it sexual immorality, okay? which is a very broad word. In fact, if I have an issue with newer translations like this, they sometimes miss the strength of the Greek word. That's why I tell you what the Greek word means. In the Greek, that word means a, a physical act between two living beings, Okay? And that's, that's the foundation for, for that word. And that includes a lot of different things, but there's a lot of things it also doesn't include. Okay? And so uh, I still have to define that for the populace to understand what that word meant in the original so that you understand what it means. But if I can't get you into the Bible to read it, it won't do you any good anyway. Um, and so uh, to those classes, that GBI class, is what helps lead us into an understanding of what it is that we have here, how special it is, because this is the only thing, this book is the only thing that separates the church from any other religion in the world. And whether that religion is one professing Christ or not, the only thing that separates us from them is God's Word, because it is the seed, it is the rock upon which the house is built, I had a young man teach at um, Snowdown where I'm at every fourth Sunday. The young men um, lead our our service on Sunday night. And I've had them pick a song out of the songbook um, and then find scriptural support for what it is that they're singing. I tell them, uh, Keith Mosier told me, said the church will sing twice as much error as it will ever allow to be preached. I said, so, I said, I want you to understand what it is. These songs you pick, is there scriptural support for this song? Well, he picked one and, um, and took it back to the, um, the wise men. He didn't pick the wise men built the south on, on the rock. I can't remember the song he picked. But he ended up using those passages about the sand and the uh, rock and building your house on them. But he never explained what the rock was. And so I, re- I just wrote a little, I had a little a note card. I wrote, what is the rock? And when he got down, I just handed him that note card. Because if you don't understand what the rock is in that passage, you'll end up building your house on sand and not even know it. And the rock in that passage is the Word of God. And so that's why GBI is probably one of my favorites. That and I told him, I said, I see y'all are working on the light work stuff. Um, The Holy Spirit is probably one of the more neglected um, subjects in the brotherhood. And that's because it... It carries so many people's opinions instead of what's in the book. 
And so uh, that was probably my second. By the time I got to the Godhead, is what it's called in the school of preaching, um, I was toast. Remember, I had two, two young girls and a family, and we were two years in, and uh, that's the, one of the last classes. And so I struggled in it um, because in the Holy Spirit class, you can only tell me about the Holy Spirit the things that you learned in the Bible. And uh, that's, a, that's a tough class. Have you ever spoken on idle words? I'm still waiting on somebody to speak what idle words are because we're going to have to give an answer for every idle word in judgment. Well, I don't know that I've done a sermon specifically on that, um, but I do, uh, do have a sermon or two about... Um, In my mind, that falls under the love of the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. What are you doing with your time? What are you doing in your idle time? So, um, are you using it for the benefit of the Lord? Is that where your energy is going? Or are you using it to uh, spread rumors and gossip and uh, strife? So, I won't avoid it. I believe idle words are, are vain words. They're, they're, they don't produce um, they don't produce things that bring glory to God. They detract from the glory of God. I think that may be why it comes up with the word idle in there. We think of idle as um, well. There's, obviously, there's two different spellings. Uh, by the way, I do not know how to spell, uh, but there are two different spellings for idle. One of them means just like your car sitting at the alert red light. It's just idling. And one of them is idols as in idol gods. I have to go back and look and see which one that one is. I can make a case for both of them, that both of them are uh, you're, you're wasting your words or you're putting words there that detract from God, and those would be idols, I-D-L-E. What else? Be careful what question you ask me. I may take the rest of the class to answer it. <laughs> personal evangelism method, what do, you, what do you do when you study with somebody? Um, I've used a little bit of everything. I've been through Fishers of Men, used it. Um, I've got um, a after I leave here I'll remember the name of it. It's not back to the Bible. I've seen that when it's trash. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, it's, a, it's the chain. It's not OBS. It's chain something. It, and, and what it does, I've got two identical Bibles. Once again, when you go out into this world to t- study the Bible with someone, they don't know what the Bible is. And um, it... Uh, one is the teachers and one is the students. I hand them the students. And as we, I have a passage where I start and I tell them it's on page 78 because they don't know where John 3.16 is. They don't understand how book chapters and verses work. But I can tell them page 78 and they know how to get to page 78. And as, and as I go through, I explain kind of how book chapter and verse works. But we step through the, the different uh, different methods. I've used that several times uh, successfully. Um, 
But I'm going to say in, in, in the personal evangelism side of things, my key of that is the personal side of it. Um, I don't claim to be the greatest preacher to ever stand in the pulpit, but I also don't believe that very many people are converted based off what they hear from behind the pulpit anyway. People are converted across kitchen tables in living rooms. And where personal evangelism happens is in people's homes. And uh, they, they want, this world wants to belong to something. And uh, if we can show them an option to belong to the Lord's church and to the family of, of Christ, then we convert souls. Um, if it's just a, I need to prove that you're wrong and I'm right, and if you believe that I'm right and you're wrong, then you'll start to do what I do. Um, that, that does, it's not very effective. Um, and the, the world today, the children today, as dumb as they are, are much smarter than they used to be. So... <laughs> Remember, I was the director of a children's home, okay? So uh, if, I, if I tell you something, it's true. It's true. It better be, because you know what every child out there is going to do? Google, what does this mean? <laughs> and if they find it something different than what I told them, guess what? I've lost all credibility. What are you going to believe from me at that point? Okay? And so uh, it starts with living it yourself. Then you show it to others and, um, and give them that benefit. Okay. If y'all are done. 20 minutes. Okay. Let's see what I can accomplish in 20 minutes. I'm going to use the, uh, the backwards favorite psalm. Everybody knows what everyone's favorite psalm is, right? Psalm 23, right? But we're going to go to Psalm 32. Okay? Psalm 32 is, uh, is not written from the, the standpoint of trouble as Psalm 23 is. Um, but it's written, I, I, it appears to me anyway, to be written in retrospect to the, uh, to the forgiveness that David receives from his sins. Now, Oftentimes we would have studied Psalm 51 prior to this. Uh, I know that's not in order, but Psalm 51 seems to be the profession of David about his sin uh, and David's desire to be back in the fellowship with the Lord and to be, be back in his, his presence and accepted by him. Psalm 32 seems to be the, the aftermath of all that. After David has received that forgiveness and the, and the great joy that he has now, seeing that God has forgiven his sins. And so we're going to read through this psalm, and uh, we're going to stop uh, here and there and talk about the, the areas where we need to focus in these particular passages. And then, as time allows, we'll look at some things that this lesson teaches us about God, some things it teaches us about ourselves, and some things it teaches us about those who are forgiven. Okay? And so Psalm 32 begins, a, a maskal of David. A maskal is a, a word that means teaching or wisdom. In fact, uh, there are times when it is translated wise or wisdom in your scriptures. And so this is a teaching psalm, a didactic psalm, it would sometimes be called. And that's just a fancy way of saying it teaches us a lesson to be known. The first couple of verses kind of focus on forgiveness itself. And, uh, and in this particular passage, he's going to give three types of sins, or three words for sins, 
You know, not everybody calls sin the same word. That doesn't mean it's not still sin. It still doesn't have the same effect. And then he'll talk about what God has done with that sin uh, for, for him. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Okay? What's the first word that he uses there to describe sin? Transgression. Transgression, Transgression means sort of a rebellion. Uh, the, sort of the, the root of that understanding is that I, there was a way that God would have me to go and I chose to go a different direction. Now what does the scripture say that he did with that particular sin, with that transgression? Forgive. It's forgiven. It's lifted up and it is carried away. It, and isn't that what we, we want with sin? We don't want it lingering around and carrying it with us. We want it removed out of our sight. Uh, if you've ever had a uh, uh, something break in your house, you don't want to go by and look at it broken all the time. You, you don't set it by the edge of the road just so when you pull in every evening you can re- be reminded of the, th- of the thing that's broken. You want the trash company to come pick it up and carry it away. David says, the one whose rebellion has been lifted away, taken out of the way, is blessed. What's the second word that's used there to describe transgression? I'd have said sin, but that's the word. Okay, And sin there is is an offense. You know, one of the, the things that was most difficult in trying to discipline children at the children's home is they didn't care what you thought about them. I care, and I hope you care, what God thinks about me. I hope you care what God thinks about you. And so when I transgress or when I sin, it is an offense against God. It is contrary to the very will of God. Now, you can probably finish this statement. God cannot lie. Y'all are good. So guess what happens when you lie? You have violated the nature of God. God can't lie and you're lying. You you think that offends God? Now, I don't particularly like the word offend anymore because everybody uses it for every time you disagree with their opinion. But if I understand offense as being against the will of God and that is a sin, then it means something to me. And so what does, the, the, uh, what does David feel has happened to his sin? It's been covered. It's been made invisible. It's not to be seen anymore. Sort of like that carried away or that, that lifting out of the way. Okay? So, blessed is that man. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no what? Iniquity is what uh, the ESV. I can't remember if the King James had a different word there or not. Got what? Guile. Guile. Well, we're not to that part yet. That's the end of the verse. Um, I got a point for that one. Iniquity. All right. And iniquity is a perverse or a misdeed, okay? And oftentimes that's what our sins are. It is, it is taking something that God had for an intended purpose and doing something else with it. I mean, the marriage bed is undefiled. But we have perverted that act that belongs in marriage. We have, um, we have a misdeed against it. And it says, Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no. 
Alright, that's what he does. He's not taking account of it anymore. He is exempting you from the uh, consequences of misusing the good that he had given you. That's what David did when he laid with Bathsheba. He had a misdeed. He had an iniquity. And he says, blessed the man. He sees, looking back, blessed the man. The Lord's not counting that against him anymore. And then he kind of puts a qualification on it. And whose spirit there is no deceit, the ESV says. Guile is the word the King James uses. Uh, and it's a word that kind of, kind of means to, um, well, in this particular case, I'd say someone who seeks to deny that what he did was a rebellion against God or deny that what he did was against the nature of God, that God cares if I did it or God doesn't care if I did it, or that God, that God didn't intend it for that purpose. I, won't, I don't want the consequences, and so I'll do what I have to do in order to, to, to miss those consequences, but really inside, I'm not sincere. So this word deceit or guile is kind of qualifying my seeking of forgiveness. Do I recognize that what I have done is sin against God? And so as we come into the next couple of verses, we find the, the fact that he, looking back, notices how he tried to conceal those sins. And so the, this at this point would have been sort of a reflection of of his guile or his deceit. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Okay, And so he recognizes that his denial, his deceit, his guile, his concealment of that sin didn't make it go away didn't make it better. In fact, it made it even worse. That the concealment of those sins and iniquities dried up whatever strength. The ESV says uh, uh, dried up. Uh, it's a word that is, is lacking of moisture. Of a, it's a drought. Uh, it's, um, I think about uh, the, you know, I had a couple of football games yesterday. One or two of them were good. And every time those players came off the field, guess what they were seeking? They were seeking a replenishment, a refreshing of themselves. David said, I had none of that. When I tried to have my sin, tell me if that's not true for you. Anytime you have found yourself in the wrong, the more you tried to hide that, the, the worse it got. You may have had dreams at night of being found out about the sin that uh, you had committed or the offense you caused against someone else. Well, the same is the case uh, against God. And so, verse 5, we kind of switch gears. He goes from that concealment now to what happens in his confessing. And so, we focus on the confession here that David says that he made. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's what he wanted. That's what he was seeking. And so once he, he made that acknowledgement, um, he recognized what a, a relief he's now going to have. In fact, verse 6 kind of transitions to, a, to an exhortation or an encouragement to do what I have done. 
I was burdened by my sin. I confessed my sin. I received that forgiveness. Therefore, verse 6, let everyone who is godly, and there's kind of the key, the person who desires to be in the fellowship of God, who, to be recognized as godly, not just by the world, but by God, are you seeking me? In fact, what's the term, the, the phrase that you most closely associate with David? David was a man after God's own heart. Now, oftentimes individuals will look at that phrase and say, how, can, how could that be? David killed all these people. His hands were so bloody, God wouldn't let him build the temple. He, uh, he, tra- he had that transgression with Bathsheba and her husband. He, he, did, he had the counting toward the end of his life. He had these, these major sins that the Scripture... How can he be a man that has a heart like God? And I see that phrase a little bit different. You see, I was once a man, very young man, after someone's heart. I was a man after the heart of Amy. And I think that David was a man after the heart of God. And I see that in the fact that when he does transgress, when he does sin, when he does recognize the iniquity that he has committed against God, how does he behave? Oh, he rips his clothes, he falls on the ground, he weeps. He writes psalms confessing his great transgression as from I was a sinner from my mother's womb. I've all, you know, he, he doesn't deny it, does he? He recognizes what kind of place that puts him in the view of God. And he seeks to, to have that back. He wants God's heart to be favorable toward him. You find the opposite in King Saul prior to David, don't you? Whenever he, whenever he sins, well, the people made me do it. Oh, it, it, it's, it, I've got a plan for, for, for this. I, I couldn't wait. I mean, those are, Saul makes excuses. David makes confessions. And as a result, he says that, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely... In the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. His exhortation is is one really of time. Notice when he says they should seek the Lord in prayer. When you may be found. When is God not there? When sin has separated us from him. And so I I categorize that when God may be found as early. We want to seek him early. We don't want to wait till the burden has become so heavy. Now I have no choice. Because that's not seeking God's heart. That's seeking an absence of God's punishment. I'm, I'm not trying just to get out of the consequences of my actions. I'm trying to be pleasing to God. What typically happens is once those great waters come rushing over us, once we're drowning... You know, once the ark, the door of the ark has been closed and the rain starts, oh, yeah, I guess I want God now. David says, don't wait. It reminds me of, of what uh, Solomon will write in, in Proverbs chapter 1 uh, about wisdom calling uh, in the street. And I usually start uh, this about verse 24 of Proverbs chapter 1. 
He says, because I have called you, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. You had opportunity. It's not like God's hidden from you. It's not like you didn't recognize that the, the, uh, these, what God had said would happen. What you did was refuse it. I don't want that. And as a result, when the storm comes, you find that your house is built on the sand and not on the rock. I'm sure that the man that built his house upon the sand, the foolish man, when it started raining... I feel like he called upon the Lord. But what are the results of that particular one? Now, the wise man's house stood firm, right? And the foolish man's house went splat. And so David says, his, his exhortation, his encouragement is, call on the Lord early. And you can be assured then, verse 7, our focus is on assurance in verse 7. You are a hiding place. He's speaking to God now. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance or songs of deliverance there in verse 7. That's what David is assured of because he's experienced it. He's seen how turning to God early, seeking Him early, will create for him this hiding place, this perseverance in times of trouble. Even when that trouble surrounds him, He's surrounded with shouts of joy to go along with it. And so in verse 8, we find what appears to me at least to be a response from God. I said in verse 7, it looks as if David's speaking to God. Now, verse 8 and 9, it looks as if God is speaking back. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. God's response is, I will give you everything you need. I will anoint your head with oil. Your cup will run over. I will prepare a table for you before your enemies. But I'm not going to force you like a mule or a horse to stay near me. I will provide but you have to make the choice to come. And the choice results in what we see in verse 10 and 11, and that is in great joy. That's our focus in verse 10 and 11. That many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love, but steadfast love or mercy, King James says, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I obviously don't have time to go through all those other points we talked about. 
And so I want to focus on just one. And that is what I learn about God from verse 11. And that is that our joy should be in God. Not in what God does for us. Not, or not simply in what God does for us. Not in, in, in what God can take away from us as far as our trouble. But our joy should be in God. And when our joy is truly in God and being, being associated and godly, then He does give us those things. That's the assurance. And He does take away those troubles or at least the, the overwhelmingness of those troubles because our joy and our assurance is in Him. And so, kind of like this psalm, and I hope you do too now. Anything, any questions or thoughts? Not everybody at once. (laughs) Thank you for your time. I think that about uh, comes close to wrapping up the time. And so, uh, appreciate your attention.